Good to see everybody this morning. How about we start a little different this morning? Um, and we'll start, I felt like it was appropriate, wow, we're lopsided, aren't we? Uh, I felt like it was appropriate on Easter Sunday morning to start uh, with confession. Does that sound good? I confess a lot during the sermon usually, so it's really no biggie. I should probably say, not confession, but insight, something you probably didn't know or, or might not expect to find out about me. Um, Contrary to popular belief or opinion, or what I may even project, see here's the gospel at work, not worrying about what you're going to think about me, um, I actually like country music. Did you know that? I'm seriously, I'm seriously. I mean, this is, look, look, easy. Some of you are going to tune me out like right now. Um, yeah, I, I, am, I am, I don't know how long, maybe four, five generations from, from Tennessee, from Nashville, uh, so it's probably in my blood, there's probably nothing I can do about it. Uh, but listen, I'll be honest, I, I like it. I like, I like country music. Uh, there are very few art forms, especially musical art forms today, that can take a story and tell a story in such a clear, passionate, compelling way in two and a half to three minutes. Very few things can do that like a country music song can. Uh, and not just the ones about dogs and trucks and, and things like that, but... There are, those, some of those are good too. I mean, you know you like them if you're driving. You know you like them. But, but I like country music. And, and there was a song years ago that came out. Uh, and the, chorus, the chorus said this. It said, ain't it funny how a melody can bring back a memory? Some of you are already singing it. You like country too. I heard murmurs over here. I don't know who it was. Ain't it funny how a melody can bring back a memory? take you to another place in time, and completely change your state of mind. And if you're honest, whether you've heard the song or not, you know it to be true. You know that there's very few things on earth as powerful as music, as powerful as a song, to at any point in your life, no matter what you're doing and what you're occupied in, a melody just has to start, and you're automatically back to a completely different place, a completely different time, whatever's associated with that song. You know, for some of you, it may be, um, uh, some of you are thinking, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. For some of you, it may be that, that moment. See, back when you were in, uh, let's say, let's go junior high, when you went to that first big dance, you know, all the girls were on one side and all the boys were on the other side, and that song played, the one that got them to cross the divide in the gym and actually walk over, and the first time you asked that girl to dance with you, you remember that song? You remember what was playing? Remember that moment? See, I'll shoot for the middle generation here because we've got generations here that probably won't know what I'm talking about and some that watch their kids do what I'm talking about. But this middle generation, this one that I'm a part of that's in here, we would memorialize moments like that with the mixtape. Do you remember the mixtape? <laughs> See, some of you in here know what I'm talking about. Some of you don't even know what tapes are. But the most of us would memorialize these moments in our life, these memories, these times, with the songs that were attached to them. And we would get a moment, man, we, we would try to communicate something to a girl, and we'd get a tape out, and we think, what song says that? And we'd have a whole list of songs and put this mixtape to just bring this memory back of that moment when I asked you to dance with me and what it was like, you know? Uh, there's a song that I can hear now, doesn't matter what I'm doing. I could probably be in here. I could probably be preaching and the song will play and I'd probably have to fight a mental recess. But there's a song will play, Please Come to Boston, the, the Jacko Pierce version, uh, for those of you that know who Jacko Pierce is. The Jacko Pierce version of Please Come to Boston, no matter where I am and what I'm doing, I'm automatically gone. I'm taken back and I'm standing at the altar and I'm watching Aaron come down this giant staircase in this huge uh, mansion at my alma mater that we were married in and I see her coming down the staircase dressed in that dress and this big smile on her face and I just hear that song. 
I hear it no matter where I am, I see it. And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter what is happening to me in that moment, my mind, my emotions, my senses are taken right back to that moment watching her come down. You can't escape it. A song can take you right back, you know. I can be in here, you know, it happens in church for me. We'll sing a song in particular, How Great Is Our God. I'm going to have to request some of the musicians have to play it for a while because it gets me every time. We hear that song. It's a great song. It's like an anthem. The splendor of a king clothed in majesty. Let all the earth rejoice. Let all the earth rejoice. But you see, in a minute, just like that, no matter where I am, I'm up here. I could be talking. You could be playing that song. All of a sudden, I'm taken back, and I'm at, I'm at the NICU at MCV. And I'm holding Owen, our son, before he passed away. And I'm realizing that I've got precious, precious minutes precious little time and all I can do to calm my soul all I can do to deal with my own struggles but also to think I'm his dad I've got this much time how can I tell him about Jesus how can I tell him how much I love him how what, what do I do and all I could do is sing and I just sang that song and I just sang that song while I held him and I would just continue over and over and over again singing that song just singing that song and in God's grace he closed his eyes he passed away while I was singing that song to him and he opened his eyes and now I simply sing in faith what he gets to see by sight and know by sight. But we can be anywhere, anywhere, and I can hear that song. And no matter what I do, I hear the noises, I hear the ventilators, I hear the machines. I'm right there in that moment with him. Music is unbelievably powerful. In an instant, one song, one tune can take us somewhere, somewhere special and bring back memories and emotions and recall points of, of space and time and life. And it was the same way in the Bible. Did you know in First Samuel second no first Samuel sixteen, when King Saul would be troubled by a by an evil torment that would come upon him, he actually sent for David. And David would come into King Saul's presence, into his chambers, and he began to play his songs, play his instruments and sing to King Saul. And the Bible says that the torment that was upon Saul's soul would depart from him. As David would play and as David would sing the power of what David was doing and what he was saying would drive the torment away from Saul. Music is, is unbelievably powerful. And I wonder when David was doing that, when he was singing to Saul, I wonder if what he was singing and what he was playing and what he was declaring became the framework for a lot of the Psalms, a lot of the songs that we have in our Bible. And one of the biggest books in the Bible that comprise, comprises a truckload of space in your Bible is actually a songbook. The book of songs is actually a songbook. It's been the songbook of the church since the first century all the way up until now. There are a lot of congregations just like us right now celebrating on Easter Sunday or any other Sunday of the year that do nothing but sing the psalms. The psalms have been the songbook of the church for centuries. And this morning, we're going to take a look at one of them. We're going to take a look at, at Psalm 124. We're going to see what this melody, what this song, what this, what this psalm would bring back to mind to the people of God and what it has to do with what we're doing here. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 124. Psalm chapter 124. I'm going to read it, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take a look at it. Psalm chapter 124, or Psalm 124. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side... Let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, the floods would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. 
Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth, for we have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning. I never want to be uh, forgetful. I never want to disregard what you have done to allow this moment to be possible. I want to thank you that we can come together and that we can surrender ourselves to you and be changed by you in the here and now, right here this morning, that we can actually hear you speak to us through your word. Help us to surrender our hearts, surrender our minds, surrender our souls, and we ask that your Holy Spirit make effective the words that I speak, make effective the words in your scripture, and, and make real transformation a reality in our lives right here this morning that we may walk out of this place and, and live in the, in the power of the resurrection and the power of Easter Sunday, that our lives may be different because of who you are and what you've done. And we ask this, that your name would be glorified, that people might be drawn to you, that you would receive much glory. Amen. Psalm, Psalm 124 is actually a piece of a collection of 15 psalms that were called the Pilgrim Psalms or, or the Psalms of Ascent. There are 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 that the people of God would sing as they would travel from their home somewhere in Palestine to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts of God, the annual pilgrimages and feasts of God throughout the year, namely Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and, and the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. So what would happen three times a year, the, all the people, all the families, all, all, all the Israelites throughout the land, they'd pack up their stuff, the appropriate things they needed to make this trip, and they would travel to Jerusalem. And, and along the way to Jerusalem with their family, with their friends, with their, their, their neighbors and, and their entire community that was going, they would sing songs. They would talk, they would tell stories, they would laugh, they would joke, but they would sing songs. And, and history marks these 15 psalms and how they came to be these uh, is for another sermon. But these 15 psalms that people would sing as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. And they're also called, your Bible may say, the Psalm of Ascents. And, and they would say the Psalm of Ascents for a couple of reasons, and we won't dwell on these too much, but Israel, Jerusalem in particular, where the temple was in Jerusalem, was the highest point in all of Palestine. So wherever the people were coming from to Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals, they were eventually having to climb uphill to get there. And there's a spiritual meaning that goes into climbing uphill towards the temple to, to celebrate the, the feasts of God. And, and there's also this story that says as the temple was built, there were 15 steps from the outer court to the place of sacrifice. And there was a psalm for each step that the people would sing. But the reality of it is that they would sing these psalms as they made their ascent. They made their pilgrimage. They made their trip to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. And so what would happen? The people would begin to sing. They would begin to celebrate. And these songs, would, these melodies would take them back. They were written and put in this place to take them back to something that they were to remember. A melody that was supposed to bring back a memory to take their hearts and take their souls and take their minds to a completely different place, a completely different time, a completely different awareness of who God was and what they were doing and, and why they were actually doing it. And Psalm 124 was one of these psalms. And some history books say that Psalm 124 actually finds its particular background and its particular reason for being penned by David in this time when David had gone into Jerusalem and he had conquered the land and he had conquered the Jebusites back in 2 Samuel 5 and, and he had owned the land and occupied the land but the Philistines came up against him. 
And the Philistines surrounded Jerusalem, and David called upon the Lord, and, and God went and did battle on behalf of David and defeated the Philistines. But very quickly, the Philistines came back again to conquer Jerusalem, and, and David prayed and called to God, what should I do? And, and God gave him this great military move to go around the backside of the Philistines and sneak up on them. And when David did what God had said, God had actually already defeated them on his behalf. So when he arrived there, they were already defeated. And, and history says that David may have pinned this this psalm in regard to what God did for them when they defeated the Philistines outside of Jerusalem, that their enemy had surrounded them. Their enemy was to engulf them. They were trapped like a bird in the fowler's snare, and God rescued them and delivered them. But it doesn't actually say in the psalm that that's what it was about. It could be. There's no reason why it couldn't be. The beauty of the psalm is that it doesn't actually tell us what the exact instance was that caused David to pen the psalm. And, and the beauty of the psalm is that we can all read this from the very first pilgrims that made this trip to us right now as we approach this text. And we can recognize that there are things, there are moments, there are circumstances whereby we need deliverance. Whereby without the aid of someone outside of ourselves, we will find ourselves destroyed, find ourselves swallowed up find ourselves trapped in a snare. One of the times that these people would particularly sing this psalm is when they were traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. So instead of trying to figure out what the military battle was that may have caused David to pin this, let's think about it from the mindset of an early pilgrim who would have been traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his family and who would be singing this psalm on his way to Jerusalem to offer the appropriate sacrifices and be a part of the festival. So to understand what they were doing and why they would sing this psalm and what difference it makes, you've got to understand a little bit about Passover. So to, to get the bigger picture for the psalm, we'll have a little bit of a history lesson. Is that all right? you know what Passover is? Do you know that we're actually celebrating Passover right now? Like finally for the first time in I think four years, Passover is before Easter on the, on the calendars that we celebrate. When you understand the story, it's really messed up how we get it backwards sometimes and we celebrate Easter before Passover. But a little bit of history. Years before David penned this, penned this psalm, the people of God, the Israelites, found themselves enslaved in Egypt. It wasn't always the case that they were conquered by Egypt and brought in as slaves as a conquered people. In fact, God actually sent them to Egypt knowing that they would be a blessing to Egypt when he sent them there. You see, Egypt, if God had not sent his people there, would actually have suffered devastation under a famine that God knew was coming to the land. But God sent his people down to Egypt that through them, they would actually be a blessing to that land. And through their man Joseph, through the Israelite Joseph, who rose into the second in command under Pharaoh, he actually orchestrated what is one of the largest famine relief programs probably ever instituted in the known world. And so God actually sent his people to Egypt that he might save them and through them be a blessing to the nation of Egypt. Joseph rose to this great place of power. The Israelites remained prosperous in the land that God gave them there in Egypt. But a pharaoh arose, the book of Exodus, a few books to the left of Psalms will tell you that forgot who Joseph was. He had forgotten the story of Joseph and who this man Joseph was. And he looked around at all of his land and he saw that these people, these Israelites, were growing in massive numbers. And he began to fear that if they actually got together and decided that we were strong enough and numerous enough to actually defeat these Egyptians, we could actually get out of this place and, and actually take over this place. And so Pharaoh, in a fit of panic, forgot what God had done for his people through the Israelites. And he began to fear them and began to oppress them. 
He began to pile hardship and hardship upon the Israelites, heavy labor in building and baking the bricks that would, do, that would build many of the structures in Egypt. And he began to oppress them tremendously. And, and God's people began to cry out. They began to cry out to God. They were being crushed, devastated under the weight of these people. As their enemies began to surround them, their enemies began to encamp around them and weigh this suffering down upon them, they began to cry out to God. The beauty of it is, it tells us in Exodus, that God heard their cries. That God heard the cries of his people. And he didn't just hear the cries of his people. There's this beautiful line in Exodus 2 that says, God, God heard his cries, heard their cries, and he knew. And then there's just a dash, just a hyphen. Say, God knew. As if to say, God didn't just intellectually look down and recognize, oh, that must not be good. That really must hurt. That suffering, that really must be dark. Scripture's written in a sense as we begin to understand the picture of who this God is, that God looked down and in his heart he felt the suffering and the hurt of his people. He heard their cries and he knew. He knew the same way a parent knows the pain their child is going through when they get hurt when they come, when they cry, and they want your, you to take care of them and you to comfort them and grab them and make it all just go away. You know that pain. The Bible says that God heard their cries and, and he knew. And he didn't just know and didn't just empathize. He didn't just see it and respond to it in that way. It said that God remembered his promises to his people. And one of the things you've got to catch when the Bible says that God remembers, it's not like you and I remembering the phone number of somebody we wrote at the club last night on our hand and we're trying to figure out, how do we get that number back? What was that number? Yeah, you're laughing. You've done that. Well, no surprise. It's not that God forgot some piece of information and all of a sudden he, ooh, remembers. I made a promise. I made a covenant. No, when the Bible speaks of God remembering his promises and remembering his covenants, it's actually action in place. It's a, it's a remembering that's motivated by a promise that he had made and an action that he's about to take. When the Bible says that God remembers something, it's letting us know. It's bringing us into the awareness that God is about to do something. He's about to act. He hasn't just remembered a piece of cognitive information. He's on the move and he's about to intervene into something. So the Bible says that God knew their suffering. He knew it in his heart. He knew it personally. And he remembered the promises that he had made to their forefathers and the covenant that he had made with them. And he began to act. He stepped into the situation they found themselves in, into the hardship they found themselves in. And he called up a man named Moses. And and we won't go through the story of Moses. You've probably seen the Disney movies about Moses. We'll cover Moses another time. But God calls up this man named Moses. And he tells Moses that you are going to go back to Pharaoh And you are going to tell Pharaoh that he is to let my people go, that they might worship me, and that my hand is strong enough, my arm is long enough, my reach is mighty enough to deliver my people out from under the bondage that they've put him in. And Pharaoh, I mean, Moses, if you know the story, is is reluctant to go and do it, but God sends him in and he obeys. And with his brother Aaron, he goes and, and he delivers God's message to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh bows up. Pharaoh bows up. Remember the myth that Pharaoh has lived under all of his life. From the moment that Pharaoh was born, he has been told and treated as if he was God. He was one of the gods of Egypt. Depending upon which legend you, you, you read about the Egyptian religion, there were some that would believe that the Pharaohs were actually the God that created all things that are. 
There was this omnipotence to Pharaoh, this sovereignty that he believed about himself and had lived under all of his life. And here comes this man, Moses, who says, let my people go that they might worship the true and living God, and he's strong enough to deliver them out from under your grasp. And Pharaoh, in all of his pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency, bows up and, and says no. And so piece by piece, God begins to chip away at Pharaoh's sense of sovereignty, at Pharaoh's sense of strength, at Pharaoh's sense of power. And plague after plague, God sends upon the people, giving Pharaoh an opportunity to bend his knee to God and repent of his sin and of his rebellion against God and allow God's people to actually go, to be free, that they might worship him. But Pharaoh, his heart is hardened. He continues to bow up and he doesn't let the people, of, the people go. He watches his people die. He watches his own people die under the weight of some of these plagues. And for the sake of his own reputation, for his own pride, for his own sense of self-sufficiency and sovereignty, he doesn't let God's people go. And so a final plague comes. God tells Moses to go tell the people, to tell the Israelites that here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come an angel of the Lord is going to pass through the land. And the firstborn amongst all who are in the land are going to die. This is what I'm going to do. But here's what I'm going to do for you. Here's what I'm going to do for you, my people, whom I have seen, whom I know, whose promise I have made and given myself to. Here's what I'm going to do to deliver you. And he gives them these instructions. He says, take for yourselves into your home a lamb, one year old, unblemished, absolutely perfect. Ten days before this time, the 14th of the month, ten days before the 14th day of the month, take this lamb into your house and care for it. And so this fa- these families will, will go and amongst their flocks, it could be a sheep or it could be a goat, they go and they find this absolutely perfect one-year-old lamb and they bring it into their house and it becomes in a lot of ways like a pet to care for and take care of. And don't, don't miss the significance of the fact that in this particular time, in this particular type of society, these things were very valuable. In a bartering and commodity society, an unblemished lamb or an unblemished goat could bring a great deal of resource to the people. It was worth a lot of money. And so God said, go and find this perfect unblemished lamb and bring it into your house and care for it. And on the 14th, 14th day of the month at twilight, here's what I want you to do. I want you to slaughter it. I want you to kill it. And I want you to take the blood from that lamb and I want you to paint it on the doorpost of your home and on the lintel of your door. And when the angel of the Lord comes by, when the angel of the Lord passes through, the firstborn amongst those in the houses with the blood of the lamb over the doorpost and over the lintel will be spared. They won't be killed. So God provided a means of deliverance for his people. Listen to this. Did not do anything to deserve or earn or make themselves approvable before God for him to deliver them. Did you know that? We tell this story all the time and we're, we're so accustomed to these good guy, bad guy stories, white, white hat, black hat stories that we think the Egyptians were these horrible people, these 
these people that worship these crazy gods and did all these detestable things. And here were God's perfect people, the Israelites, caught up in, in slavery to these people and, and crying out. And they, they were the good guys in the white hats and these were the bad guys in the black hats. And God needed to do something to, to save the people in the white hats and, and get rid of the people in the black hats. Well, here's the reality. A few books over from Exodus, in the book of Joshua, the Bible tells us that before the people of God entered into the land that God had promised them and that God had taken them to and that God had delivered them from that they might go into and be his people, Joshua tells his people this, get rid of all the gods of your fathers that you worshiped in Egypt before we go into the land. Did you hear that? Joshua looks at the generation that has gone through the wilderness that God has led, and he's about to take into the promised land. And he says, now you, who are going, go, going to go into the land that I'm giving you, get rid of the gods of Egypt that your fathers worshipped and that you have continued to worship before we go into the land. See, the people of God, the Israelites, they, they did not deserve the deliverance that came to them from God because they were just as guilty of the same sin that God was going to judge the Egyptians for, and that was a worship of something that was not the true and living God. God was going to judge the Egyptians for their sin, for their worship of these false gods, but at the same time, he was going to deliver his people, Israel, who were guilty of the very same thing. And so what had to happen was God had to provide some type of substitute, some type of sacrifice on their behalf because there was nothing inherent in them that was, would merit the forgiveness and the deliverance of God. So God said, take this lamb and kill this lamb and put his blood over the door and over the doorposts. And when I pass by and I see that blood, I will spare the firstborn in that house. And so imagine it. Here the people of God are. Twilight comes. Sacrifices are made. Doorposts are painted. And people go to bed. And the angel of the Lord comes through. And he comes to the first house. And he looks in the window. And over in the mantle are all of the gods of Egypt that the family worshipped. Firstborn passes away. He goes to the second house. Looks in the window. All of the gods of Egypt are on the mantle. Firstborn passes away. Third house, same thing. Fourth house, same thing. Fifth house, same thing. He comes, he looks in the window. All the gods of Egypt lined up on the mantle. But there's the blood over the doorpost. And the angel of the Lord passes over that house. And the firstborn doesn't pass away. That's the Passover. That's the Passover. God set in place a reminder to his people that he would be their God and he would deliver them out of the oppression that they had found themselves in and he would deliver them from an oppression that they didn't even recognize was their greatest need. You see, here's the greatest need and we'll, we'll unpack this in a little bit more here in a second. These people were groaning under the weight of this suffering and this slavery they found themselves in in Egypt but the greatest problem was not the fact that they were having to make bricks and they were having to be slaves and do for the Egyptians what they didn't want to have to do. The greatest problem these people found themselves in is that they had been separated from God and there was a just and a holy and a loving God who had to deliver his people from a slavery they found themselves in that was even greater than the Egyptians. It was a slavery to sin but how would a just and holy and righteous God deliver sinful, rebellious, 
and self-righteous people like the Israelites and, and like you and I without compromising his love and his mercy and his justice and his wrath. And God looked at the Israelites and said, you have nothing to commend yourselves to me, but I will provide for you a substitute. I will provide for you through this perfect lamb, a substitute sacrifice on your behalf that will cover you, that will be for you the cost of your sin in my eyes that you might remember for all of time as you celebrate this festival that this is the consequence of sin, that the wages of sin in and of themselves are death, but I have provided for you a way out. I have provided a substitute on your behalf. So every year, the people of God were to travel to Jerusalem and they were to celebrate the feast of the Passover when they would take a lamb and they would sacrifice a lamb on behalf of their family for their sins and celebrate this Passover meal. And it was a great festival, a great time of celebration in the life of the people of Israel. And so all of these people would travel. They would come from all over the land to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover feast. And as they would go, they would, they would sing this psalm. They would sing this. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when the people rose up against us. When the people rose up against us, when Israel, when Egypt rose up against us, when our sin rose up against us. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side when we found ourselves crushed by the weight of the slavery in Egypt, overthrown by the weight of the power of this nation, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, what what would become of us? And so they would sing, and they would celebrate. And in that melody, and in that time, and in that moment, their hearts would be taken back to the time when God provided for them a way out, when God provided for them a substitutionary sacrifice on their part, that when the angel of the Lord passed over, they would be saved. And then God went to deliver them out of that land, through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into the promised land, that he would be their God and they would be his people and they would sing this song and their hearts would be lifted and their hearts would be filled as they would remember the deliverance of God from the land of Egypt and now towards the mountain of God to celebrate what he has done, remembering that there was a deliverance that was yet to come, that there was another covenant that God had made, another promise that God had made, that one day he would take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that he would write the law of God on their hearts and he would be their God and they would be his people and there was this deliverance that was yet to come. And so they would go and they would celebrate, remember what they had been delivered from and what God would promise to deliver them from in the future and they would sing. And That's what this psalm was about. But it's 2009. Here's the thing, it's 2009. I don't know if you've ever been a slave in Egypt or a slave in, in anywhere else. And so as they would read this psalm and connect with this song and sing this, sing this psalm and remember what they had been delivered from and what God had done for them and the sacrifice that was made on their behalf and where they were going, what do we sing? I mean, what point is it for us? I mean, we sing this, read this psalm. We don't actually sing it. Maybe we should sing it one day. We read this psalm and are we supposed to remember the, the, the slavery of the Israelites in Egypt? And are we supposed to try to connect our emotions back to what it must have been like for them and how God delivered them out of that? What do we sing about? Well, I'll say that understanding the, the idea of slavery and what the Israelites had been through in Egypt 
is a way to connect to understanding this psalm because the reality of it is we may not find ourselves as slaves to another nation, to another land, but all of us find ourselves as slaves to, to our own desires. Find ourselves as slaves ultimately to our own sin. See, everybody, doesn't matter who you are in here, everybody has a bottom line desire, a bottom line thing, a bottom, a bottom line purpose by which they pursue whatever it is that they want in life. Everybody has a center out of which they work them, their lives out of. All of us have something that we're pursuing. It might be security. It might be acceptance. It might be power. It might be control. It might be forgiveness. All of us have something that we give our lives to. All of us have something that gives our lives a bottom line sense of meaning. And whatever we give our lives to, whatever we give ourselves to, has control over us. Whatever you give yourself to has control over you. You see, in the beginning, we were created by God to to live a life of dependence upon God, and our lives were to be compelled to be built in and hardwired and connected to bringing God glory through the life that we live in dependence upon him, trusting him to provide for us all that we needed, and then living in response to that in ways that magnified his sufficiency to give us what we needed and to be God for us. That's what we were created to do. We were created to find the center of our lives in glorifying God in all that we do. And instead, what we talk about as sin is this act of substituting ourselves for God. And in the beginning, man substituted the desire to bring God glory for a desire to bring glory to himself. And since that time, all of us have have sought to bring this glory upon ourselves and to substitute the glory that is due to God for glory and pride and self-sufficiency. So all of us have this center, all of us have this bottom line thing that gives our lives meaning and whatever we give ourselves to has control over us. I mean, for some of us who have been around the church for a really long time, the slave master in our hearts become the rules that we build, the rules that we erect, that define for us what a, what a good Christian is. Our, our pride becomes this center by which we begin to live our lives out of. Our lives, the bottom line thing that defines our lives and gives shape and, and motivation to what we do and why we do it is, is this pride that says, if I do these things right, if I do these things well, if I do X, Y, and Z, then, then God will love me. Then I, then I can lay all these things down before God and, and prove how worthy I am of his acceptance and worthy I am of his love and worthy I am of his forgiveness. And this self-righteousness becomes so great that everyone around us can smell it when we walk into a room, but we never recognize it ourselves. And all of a sudden, we become slaves to our own pride and our own self-righteousness, and we become 
driven by the, the promises that this self-righteousness brings, that, that if we just do it, then we'll be okay, and our life becomes hardwired to keep this particular reputation up because we have to begin to prove that we really are as good as the reputation that we put out there says we are, and so if we were to make a mistake, if we were to fail, all of a sudden that reputation would no longer be valid, and we'd be racked by guilt and devastation and struggle because all of a sudden we didn't do what we think we had to do, and God might not love us, and people not, might not think we're as good as we actually are, and what do we do at that point? And our lives become driven enslaved by this desire for self-righteousness, this desire this born out of our pride that thinks ultimately that though I do a lot of religious things and a lot of things that look right and a lot of things that, that might look like they're the things we're supposed to do, we're actually using those things as a way to keep ourselves away from being dependent upon God and they f- keep us dependent upon ourselves doing all these things in an effort to earn people's approval and earn God's favor and earn God's love and we find ourselves as slaves, enslaved by our own sense of self-righteousness, enslaved by our own pride. This thing that drives and gives bottom line meaning to what we do and why we do it, ultimately, whatever we give ourselves to enslaves us. It has control over us. It's a snare, like the psalmist says, that we find ourselves like a little bird caught in caught in can't get free how do we how do we get free how do we get out of the trap of the fowler how do we get out of the snare that our own sin and our own pride our own self-righteousness has caught us in even those of us who, who don't find ourselves in this pattern of trying to prove ourselves to others and prove ourselves to god through religion and say that you know, even the opposite is I don't go to church. I don't believe in, in the story of this God. I, I don't think that there's any one exclusive truth in this whole thing. Even that is a, is a trap. Even that is a way of living that ultimately comes with this idea that you have the capacity to live independent. You have the capacity to live separated from this God. So where does our, where does our deliverance come from? I mean, where does our deliverance come from? Where does our freedom come from? If the Israelites could sing of of this God who knew their plight, who knew their struggle, who knew their suffering, who knew what they were going through, and who remembered the promises that he had made to them, and he acted to step into the situation that they found themselves in and to make a way to deliver them from the slavery they found themselves in, that they might worship God and be free to be the people that God had created them to be, that God might know them and they might know God and he might be their God and they might be his people. And they could sing of the deliverance that God brought for them through this celebration of the Passover. Where in the world does ours come from? And where in the world does my deliverance from the slavery to my own pride and my own self-righteousness and my own sense of worth come from? Because I can't get out of it. There's nothing that I can do to get out of it. My heart seems hardwired to want to prove myself to God and to prove myself to everybody else, to make myself lovable, to make myself acceptable, to make myself worthy of anything that God might approve, that he might accept me, that he might love me, that he might forgive me. Where in the world does my deliverance from that come from? Are we going to bring the lamb out now? I mean, Some of you are like, is he going to bring the lamb out? <laughs> Who's got the knife? Has Chris got the knife? No. Bring the lamb out now. We don't have to bring the lamb out and make a sacrifice for our sins to be passed over anymore. And here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of it. Just as pilgrims for 
centuries all throughout Palestine would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover and sing this song. Sing this psalm of deliverance and freedom from what God has done. There was, there was a particular traveler who sang this song. There was a particular traveler, an Israelite, who, who sang this psalm all of his life. Every year of his life, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem with his family. Can you imagine this? Every year, on his way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, Jesus sang this psalm. Every year he grew, the Bible said, in wisdom and stature and in understanding. At 12 years old, in Jerusalem, celebrating the Passover, having sung this psalm with his family, remembering what God had actually done to deliver his people, here is Jesus singing this, and I wonder what has to be going through his mind. And at 12, the Bible says that his family was on their way back home, and they had actually not noticed that they had forgotten Jesus. And so three days later, they go back into Jerusalem and they find Jesus in the temple, sitting with all the teachers, asking them questions, listening to their answers. And it says that everybody in their presence was amazed by the insight that he had. And year after year, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem singing this song. And I wonder what was going through his mind. Because there was one last trip into Jerusalem that Jesus took to celebrate the Passover. See, Jesus never had to take a lamb to offer for the sacrifices for his sins, for he never sinned. In this one particular time, going back into Jerusalem, at the end of his ministry, Jesus entered into the city not to offer a sacrifice, not to lay his hands on a lamb that his sins might be forgiven but to lay himself down as a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. See, Passover was this institution that God put in place to remind his people of the weight and the consequence of their sin, that their sin actually brings separation and death, and that there is nothing in them that commends themselves to God, and they deserve to be punished for their sins against a holy God. And there was nothing that any man or any woman throughout all of history could do to make up for the devastation that our sin brings to the character of God. And so God had to devise a plan in his wisdom that made a way for his love and mercy to reconcile and deliver sinful, arrogant, self-righteous men and women like you and like me in a way that doesn't compromise his wisdom, his justice, his righteousness, and his holiness. Do you get that paradox and conundrum for God? The God of love and mercy that everybody wants to cry out to, that everybody wants to claim, this is God, God is love. Well, God of love and mercy and justice is also a God of holiness, righteousness, and judgment. And God has to devise a way for his love and his mercy to deliver self-righteous people like you and me in a way that doesn't compromise his holiness and his justice. You see, for all, of you, for all those centuries, Passover, if it had never ended, was actually a compromising of the righteousness of God. Because what Passover was doing was passing over the sins, not actually bringing a final judgment upon them. So God had to figure out a way to actually justify his holiness, justify his righteousness in a way that delivers us from the penalty of our sins, which is death and separation from him in a way that doesn't compromise his love and mercy. How does he do it? 
He comes in Jesus and he enters into Jerusalem and he becomes the Passover lamb that takes away the sins of the world. While we were yet sinners, Paul says, Christ Jesus laid himself out on a cross and became sin for us and delivered us from the punishment and eternal separation from God that is the judgment of our sin. God made him, Paul said, who knew no sin to become sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God devised a way for his love to deliver his people that did not compromise his righteousness, his holiness, or his justice. And it was Jesus becoming the Passover lamb in our place so that we do not have to sacrifice any more lambs any more goats or any more bulls, which the Bible says ultimately in Hebrews never could take away the sins of the world and it never could clean the conscience. So God made a way for his justice to be vindicated and his love to be vindicated and felt by his people and delivering his people by offering a substitute in our place on the cross and that was Jesus. The unblemished lamb of God, John says, who came to take away the sins of the world. So now we come to Psalm 124 and we can say, if it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let us, let Robert now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on my side but my sins and it rose up against me, when my sin and my pride and my self-righteousness and my desire to live my life independent of God, dependent upon myself, when it rose up against me, when it had entrapped me like a bird in a fowler's snare, when it had caught me like prey in the teeth of a wild beast, when there was nothing that I could do to save myself from myself, if it had not been for God, who did what I could not do and paid the price that was ultimately mine to pay in my place, that I might be reconciled to him, delivered to him, from myself if it had not been for him but blessed <laughs> but blessed be the Lord who has not only delivered me from my sin he has not only delivered us from the entrapment of our sin Psalm 124 says the snare is actually broken we have escaped the dominion and the power and the eternal consequence of our sin like a bird from the snare of fowlers. The snare is actually broken and we have escaped. Our help, our help is in the name of the Lord who created heaven and earth. And so as the Israelites would approach this psalm as they would go and celebrate the deliverance that God gave them from Egypt and the sacrifice in their place that the lamb played, that the angel of God might pass over and spare them. Now we can come to the same psalm and not have to sing this psalm and remember the slavery of the Egyptians. But we can come to the psalm and remember the slavery of our own hearts to our own sin and to our own pride and to our own self-righteousness. We can recognize that without God, if it had not been for God, if he had not been on our side and done for us what we could not do for ourselves, we would find ourselves washed over by the torrent of our own sin. We would find ourselves devastated in the teeth of our own desires. But blessed be God who has delivered us. Blessed be God who has made a way of escape. Blessed be God who came and paid the price for our sin in our place, who provided a perfect substitute 
for us. Blessed be God who made a way to uphold his justice and his righteousness and his holiness without compromising his love and his mercy, without compromising his grace. And how do we appropriate it? How do we access it? How can we experience that in a way that we can sing this with the Israelites and sing of God's deliverance and live life in the light of God's deliverance? Do it the same way the Israelites did. Same way. Every year they took that lamb to the temple, believing that what God said was true. And that as they would obey, and that lamb would be sacrificed, that God would pass over their sins. We do it the same way they do it. We listen to what he says, and we put our trust in what he says, and we come to him with our faith, believing that if we lay our sins, we lay our lives, we lay our righteousness on him, and accept from him his righteousness and his forgiveness, And we'll experience the deliverance. We'll experience the freedom. We'll be able to sing this same pilgrim psalm with all of God's people throughout history and be able to live with our lives a celebration that says, blessed be God, the creator of the heavens and of the earth. It's just simply taking our trust and our belief and saying, God, accept me, forgive me, love me, not for my sake, but for Jesus' sake. For the sake of him who came and did what I could not do and paid the price for the life that I deserve, forgive me, accept me for his sake. And we place our trust no longer in what we can do to earn God's love and earn God's favor and earn the approval and the reputation that we think God wants us to have, but we recognize that Jesus did that in our place. He earned our forgiveness by his life and his death and his resurrection. We place our trust in that and accept God's remedy for our deepest, deepest, deepest problems and needs. As we close, another slide, there's Romans, Romans chapter eight is gonna come up here. I think Paul had this psalm in his mind when he wrote this. And so the way that they would sing this psalm, Psalm 124, it was actually what they would call a, like a, a, a lead and response psalm. There would be somebody, usually the father in the family, who would say the first verse, and then the family or the clan would say the next one, and they would sing it all together. And I think Paul had this psalm in his mind when he wrote this in Romans chapter 8. So what we're going to do as we end, and I'm going to pray, is I'm going to read what's in bold, and then we're all going to read what's not in bold. The psalmist says, if God had not, if God had not been with us, if God had not been for us, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you that we can come together and we can celebrate the fact that you and your wisdom have solved the greatest problem, the greatest dilemma in all of history and you have delivered us from our slavery to sin, to death, to Satan without having to clean ourselves up first. There was nothing that we had to do to make ourselves ready to earn your forgiveness and to earn your deliverance. But while we were still sinners, while we were still self-righteous, while we were still seeking to live independently of you, you came and, and offered yourself up as a sacrifice on our behalf. Or you made a way to reconcile my sinful, self-righteous heart back to you. And Lord, I thank you that we come together and, and every week is an Easter celebration. Every Sunday is an Easter celebration. That every time we're together, we get to celebrate the fact that you did not just lay yourself down and sacrifice yourself on our behalf, but, but God, you accepted that sacrifice and, and Jesus is no longer in the grave. That he has risen. And Lord, you have conquered death no more sacrifices have to be made. There's nothing that we need to do. As desperate as my heart wants to make it that way, I desperately want to come to you every day and say, here, here, have this for this sin. Here, look, look I did this. Hey, will you accept this? Lord, take this on behalf. I know I've done, I've sinned, I've thought this, I've separated myself. Look, take this, please. It's done. It's done. Lord, there are no more sacrifices to be made, no more things to clutter up your altar. Lord, help us to, Lord, help us to better understand, accept, and live in the light of the goodness of what you've done. We ask these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen.